0: Everyone, Welcome to a very special episode of Weaving Myths. This extra episode is made possible by our patrons over at Patreon. Thanks to their continued and extremely generous support, this episode will be containing topics picked entirely by patrons. For those of you that don't know, Weaving Myths is a podcast focused on tabletop role-playing games and specifically playing them through the play-by-post format. I'm your host, Nathan, and joining me today are Ruben, Hello, and welcome from the wind tunnel. And Mordi. Good evening. We are all moderators on Mythweavers, a play-by-post gaming website, and we're here to help bring your game to the next level. If you're not familiar with Mythweavers, you can find it at myth-weavers.com. As always, we are joined by the impeccable text chat, which members of Mythweavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. If you too would like to join in on the show, you can listen live by joining the Mythweavers Discord server every other Saturday at 8pm Eastern Time. Today, our patrons have selected humor games and introducing people to the proverbial table as our topics for the evening. At the end, we'll open the floor to a live Q&A session from the text chat where anyone can ask us anything be it about Mythweavers, gaming, or anything else they want to know. So, the first topic on the agenda is humor games. So, when we talk about humor in role-playing games, they kind of normally don't really go together. Normally, you have, like, a super serious fantasy setting, or you have, like, a somewhat light-hearted fantasy setting. Um, Like, I know Warcraft, as an example, takes its fantasy setting very seriously, or... D&D, like Greyhawk and um, Ravenloft, those are all very serious fantasy settings. But there are other games that approach it in a completely different style. Like, when we talk about humor and fantasy going together, most commonly, I think the example that people think of is Monty Python, and or at least Monty Python and the Holy Grail, not necessarily Monty Python as a whole. So we're going to talk about how we make sure that humor and the coolness of a fantasy setting don't really overlap or don't really interfere with one another and how we can make them work together very well. I'd also like to
1: chime in that um, humor is kind of a scale. Not all games are Money, Python, and the Holy Grail. Some are maybe closer to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or Red Dwarf.
2: Yes, you can have a game that's funny, but not a game that's insane. There's a fine line to walk there.
0: And I think making sure that everybody knows what side of the line you're going to be on is really important. So you want to make sure that everyone knows what kind of humor you're going for, rather than, hey, this is just a funny game. Do with that information what you will.
1: I actually think with communication and out-of-character communication is actually much more vital in a humor game than it is in a serious game. Because it really requires everybody kind of aligning to the same sort of tastes and boundaries.
2: Yeah, let's let's start that as early as possible. In the advertising process, the GM has to be very explicit about, okay, we're going to have a funny game, and these are the types of things that I think would fit well in with the type of game that I'm intending to run, and these other things are right out.
0: And, yeah, Mick the Rogue brings up a good point that you also should probably mention what isn't funny, or what is considered not funny in the game. Um, there are some jokes that just take things too far or cross over that line into insanity rather than funny. So you have to make sure that people stay on the right side of funny rather than crossing over into a no-no land basically.
1: And I think it's also on the players and the GM to realize that some things should never be joked about. Some things you joke about can make everybody really uncomfortable. And so, yeah, it's a good idea to have a definite list of no-no's and just things you steer clear of.
2: Yeah, a uh, that's what she said can be humorous on a certain level, and then there's other times when it just, you just you don't go there. And it's very difficult in today's world to really get that level of alignment unless you have a constant open source of communications between the parties. It, it, we can't overemphasize the need to talk about uh, where borders are before you start entering a genre that almost by definition goes and pushes at the edge of those borders just to to see what will happen.
1: Uh, Tiffany Carter brings up the concept of the X card, which if you're not familiar, the X card is a card with an X on it. Uh, this is in tabletop where if somebody starts bringing up something that uh, another person finds uncomfortable, you can slap that card on the table and you just stop. It's a good way just to kind of say, nope, full stop, don't go there. We don't want to do that. Uh It probably, in play-by-post, I would just have someone be able to type X card, and you don't have to explain it is the key thing. Just, it gets played, you stop.
0: So, speaking of humor kind of being this sliding scale from slightly funny all the way to slapstick, three stooges funny, um... I think there are several systems out there that kind of work really well for humor in general. And one of the ones I'd like to bring up is paranoia, which is you can play it all the way from super serious and super like mirror shades, paranoid, paranoid and like backstabbing and uh, secrets under the table and all that, all the way up to slapstick humor where tripping and falling is enough to kill your character. So that system, I think, plays very well with humor, and nece- not necessarily just humor, but also you can do it with more serious games as well.
1: Speaking of systems, I'd like to bring up one of my favorites, which is Inspectors. Inspectors is basically Ghostbusters meets Office Space, and it's a very, very group collaborative game where the GM doesn't have a ton of control. Uh So that one's really, really funny. It's my favorite convention game because of that. It's really easy to just kind of, like, you have good players, set it up and let them go wild.
2: Well, I've already uh, done my spiel about the virtues of Rysis before, but that's another system that you can play comedy up to the hilt because the whole idea of some of your cliches is really to be that over the top.
0: I think our Weaving Myths Does Tabletop where we played Rysis was a very good example of the comedy that you can have with that system.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Indeed. And then there's also um, Red Dwarf which if you're not familiar, Red Dwarf is a very funny British space show. They actually have an RPG for that. It's actually really good. Uh, it's now out of print, so it's hard to find, but it's well worth tracking down. And then you also have Tune, which is pretty much custom-built for just playing movie tunes.
0: So once you've kind of picked a system and you've laid out what is and isn't funny, it's it's kind of time to move into actually being funny. And it's very hard to force people to be funny like most humor is funny because it's unexpected it's not what you're ready for it's very witty or sarcastic and you're not quite like prepared for what's coming at you
2: and now for something completely different <laughs>
0: <laughs> i i think
1: because people assume oh it's a comedy game you just have to be silly it's going to be easy it's not nearly that easy. I would actually say comedy games are one of the hardest ones to run because you kind of have to be constantly on, and the GM has to be really good about thinking on their feet and kind of coming up with uh, pushbacks. It's like they say, comedic actors usually make very good dramatic actors because dramatic acting is actually less hard than comedic acting.
2: Well, let's start with a very simple. I mean, the obvious gag-type comedy, things like, Slipping and falling on banana peels, I mean, that can be emulated fairly well with failed skill checks, something that happens all the time, but there's ways to describe it in a way that's not just, oh, okay, I I dropped my sword, but to to actually make it amusing. And, and, you know, that's kind of the the counterbalance. You You can find value in failure in a comedy game almost more easily than you can find it in a more serious game.
0: So I have a small story I'd like to tell in in that vein. So I'm running for my real life tabletop group, a campaign that I wrote. And one of the parts of the campaign is they were trying to sneak past an ogre. And instead of making it like this super tense moment, I wanted to kind of make it more funny than something that they needed to really be worried about. So, they're going along, and they all roll sneak checks, except for, or well, they all roll them, and everybody succeeds, except for one character in the group. And this was a perfect opportunity for me to say to the group that they were um, talking amongst themselves. They saw the ogre. Oh, God, I'm telling this story so bad. But they were having a conversation amongst themselves, and jokingly, one of the characters- Punched another one in the shoulder as they're trying to sneak past this ogre. And instead of the sneak check being failed in the form of the ogre notices them, instead it was the guy, the character that got punched made this really loud, almost borderline inappropriate sound that drew the ogre's attention. And that had my entire table laughing very hard. Um and that was that was a collaborative effort between me and my players and I think that's true of a lot of comedy it's not just one person making jokes it's everybody kind of working together to make a situation more hilarious
2: Yeah I mean how often do you see I mean there are plenty of stand up comics there's one guy up on the stage but he's not playing to an empty room and it's that collaboration between the artist and the audience which you replicate somewhat between the players and the GM or a player and all of the rest of the people at the table. A stand up artist doesn't just stand on the stage and tell jokes to an empty room. He has to have that audience laughing back, enjoying the humor in order for it to be actual humor.
1: But I think it's important to note in relation to that, that play by post doesn't have the immediate feedback that you get at the table. So you kind of have to wait for people to respond a bit more, and you maybe have to also communicate out of character more that, hey, that was funny.
2: Having a mechanism to reward those sorts of things works really well in the humor context. It can work in other games too, but just being able to, to drop a quick reward on a teammate for, oh, that was the best joke, I was rolling on the floor dying over here. It can contribute to the uh, the incentive to keep it up.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to note that you mentioned a player could reward.
0: I think you definitely have to let players reward in addition to the DM. So that kind of goes back to the setting the expectation at the beginning of the game, where you want to make sure that everyone is on board that, hey, if something isn't funny to me, that doesn't mean it's not funny to you. So if you think something is hilarious, feel free to chime up and say, oh my gosh, that was so funny, and then... I, I don't know exactly how you would go about rewarding that, but, you know, maybe the GM gives out an extra experience bonus or perhaps they get an extra hero point or in 5th edition they get inspiration. It, it's, there's any number of ways to reward that process, but not it shouldn't just be the GM being the judge of what's funny. So in addition to uh, the problem with not
1: getting immediate feedback because you're not at the table... One, when I run a humorous game, one of my biggest crutches in uh, tabletop is the funny voice. And I'm actually fairly good at doing funny voices. But that doesn't carry through in play-by-posts, so you have to fall back on a couple of other tricks. Uh, I mean, one thing you do is weird names. As Nathan suggested, Mayor Dinky Winky of the Underequipped of Thalion. Oh, that's a tongue twister. Uh, stuff like that could make things
0: funny. And I'll go ahead and add, it's not necessarily just about the name of a character. So, like, you can have a completely absurd name for someone, but someone who thinks they're a mayor and thinks they're very self-important, but in reality, this guy is just a beggar who just so happens to trace his lineage back to the past ten generations of beggars, and he's very proud of that. So, it's... it's you want to have... Things that are absurd, but it's why they are absurd that can make things even funnier. I think in general, you kind of have to exaggerate everything. You need
1: to go a little over the top with names, with places, with backstories and things. Uh even magical items could have stupid effects. Ah, this is a sort of eyebrow waxing. When you hit your opponent, it not only hurts him, it waxes
0: his eyebrows. I think classic... Com- well, I say classic, but um classic comedy examples are really a good place to look for references for this type of humor that we're going for. Scooby-Doo villains, Austin Powers, uh, maybe you guys can help me out and name a couple other examples.
2: Oh, the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon.
0: Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh Three Stooges uh, is an obvious one.
2: Avid Costello.
0: Charlie Chaplin. Oh, you know what? Oh. Evil Dead.
2: Pink Panther.
1: The movie or the Cartoon.
2: Yes, but more the movie.
1: Oh, and of course Looney we'll Tunes, especially Roadrunner and Coyote. Actually, Coyote is the big number one king of the example of the critical fumble in a comedy game.
2: Yeah, Tom and Jerry will hit that too. How many times did Tom step on that rake?
1: <laughs> well, it's a Simpsons proved, The first time it's funny, second time not as funny, and then it gets unfunny, but about the sixth or seventh time, it's really funny again. <laughs> Oh my god,
0: you killed Kenny! But it's interesting how that works though, because the first, first time it's hilarious, the second time it's not, it's still kind of funny, and then it fades from being funny, and then it comes back to being funny, because at that point, it's a repeated recognizable joke. So the, oh my god, you killed Kenny joke, it's funny because everybody recognizes it, and it's been running for so long that People know they're expected to laugh at it and be funny, and it's expected to be funny. So repetition is not necessarily a bad thing, but inside jokes and memories that people have of a joke that happened a long time ago making a comeback can be just as funny as the first time it showed up. I mean, really, I think with a comedy game,
1: the better you know your players and the better everybody knows each other the better it's going to go. I mean, I really don't think a comedy game is one you want to just cold recruit for if you can avoid it. Yeah, I think it's a lot more successful if you can get a bunch of people you already know, because then you know your kind of humor and what you like.
2: Yeah, so if we're looking for other inspiration, you can go with genre-based comics, like uh, Order the Stick, DM of the Rings, Darth and Droids, 8-Bit Theater. I mean, how, how far over the top do you want to go?
1: Uh, I will also add uh, Table Titans. And, uh, Binwin's Minions. Actually, Bidwin's Minions has really, really good examples of how to make Death and Resurrection funny.
0: And, you know, it's not like there's any shortage of people out there playing tabletop role-playing games who are funny. I mean, I, I've only watched a couple episodes, but Critical Role is another one that they have several jokes throughout the course of the the show. It's not, I wouldn't call it necessarily a comedy game, but it definitely has jokes in there that are good examples of how to make, like, D&D funny.
1: And there's also Harmontown, which is also quite funny. Otherwise, both of those, I would caution, those guys are professional comedians, professional comedy writers, and professional voice actors. Be careful you don't set yourself up to an unreasonable standard.
2: Yeah, I mean, there are also plenty of good uh, comedic books and genre as well, but I think that falls into the same category of the books that people read that are really good. These guys have been writing for a long time, and they really know their craft. So don't expect that you're going to be, to Terry Pratchett, out of the box, no matter to how to good go. this world is and how much you really, really love the humor.
0: I was actually yeah, just I mean, about to go to Terry Pratchett. He's a great example of his stuff is hilarious, but... Being able to craft comedy on a level that he does is an unreasonable expectation.
1: Yeah, I was going to go there, too. And he's also a really good example of he turns all of tropes on their head. So like Rincewind, most of your wizards are really good at magic and used to kind of solving encounters with magic. Except Rincewind is a terrible wizard and a coward. And so because he subverts that expectation, it's really funny.
2: Yeah, you can take tropes and turn them all over the place. I mean, who wouldn't read a great story about a bunch of uh young ladies going and rescuing a prince in distress from a tower guarded by a uh, dragon thing?
1: Heck, I've run that game. It was awesome.
0: So one thing I would like to mention is that the setting of your game can be just as important as the jokes that your characters are telling. So, like, for example, maybe the blacksmith of a town doesn't necessarily make swords or spears. Instead, he makes rubber chickens or, you know, licorice whips, as some examples. And you can really get into the world-building aspect, and maybe dwarves don't live in mountains. Maybe they live in the tops of trees instead. So you can kind of use your world to your advantage, and this kind of ties into flipping tropes on their head but making your making your world funny as well can help set the stage for more jokes but
2: well, on the flip side you got to be careful not to make it so complicated that it takes more effort to create the humor than uh, than it does you know just to play a regular game you know keep the plot relatively straightforward so that you're focused on the playing of the game more than the uh the the mechanics of getting uh through whatever puzzles that uh, y- you've set before them whatever challenges there are Yeah I think
1: actually I think this is a uh, really good genre to kiss or keep it simple stupid
0: Yep um the the plot of your game should not be this very complicated political intrigue with multiple factions and uh, multiple players and all these intertwining layers of story. It should be very straightforward. Here's a thing. Go do the thing. Do it in the funniest manner possible.
2: Yeah, like uh, having a darkness spell that uh, drops black plastic sunglasses over the eyes of everyone who's affected by it.
0: So one one more thing that I'll go ahead and throw out there is your char- the characters that your players are using are gold mines for inside jokes, um, funny moments in the future. Like your the characters should fit the genre. They should have moments in their backstory that could come back to bite them and be a hilarious reprisal of a character from the past. Or I mean your your characters are as much a source of inspiration for jokes as everything else.
2: Yeah, we had a uh gnomish sorcerer named Grimple in one of our games, and he was completely absent-minded um, and was in pursuit of a uh, long-lost relative uh, by a different name who was a even greater sorcerer and you know, his, his complete inspiration for uh, who he was and who he wanted to be. Uh, and then he realized about three years into the game, oh yeah, that's me. That was a great moment. He had completely forgotten his own identity because he was so absent-minded. I had a uh, little birdie in my ear remind me about one of the things to be very careful with in play-by-post specifically is tone, because you don't have one. And it can be very easy to have something that was meant to be funny in a certain way misconstrued in a different way that's not funny. So you got to be choosing your words with care.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this just goes back to, I think, First of all, comedy is a little difficult, and then I think transferring it to play-by-post just makes it even more difficult. Uh, I would say this is maybe
0: one of the more master-level kind of games. And it's not even just a master-level game to run. I think it's a master-level game to play in as well because the expectation on your players is so high. It's not just the GM that has to do an excellent job. You, first of all, want players who know each other very well, have gamed together at least probably three or four times in the past um, who have a means of communicating that allows them to express why they think things are funny or like if so in play by post you make a post having a way to talk about the post after it's made and explain oh my gosh I think that's hilarious is a really important tool but ultimately it comes down to this is not something that Six or seven random people should just show up and start doing on their very first session.
2: Oh, absolutely not. I could see that going so badly
0: so yeah if i were if I were to run a game like this on play by post, I would not advertise for it. I would make sure I picked my players extremely carefully and made sure I gave them as much information as possible up front to let them know this is the kind of game we're going into. This is the tone. This is the expectation for what is and isn't funny. Like, this is not something I would want to pick six random people I've never gamed with before. All right, well, do we have any final thoughts before we move on to the next topic? Only that we talked a lot
1: about fantasy, and comedy works just as well with a lot of other genres. I think Red Dwarf, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, The Horrible. And a bunch of other shows proved
0: that. I'd also go as far... I, I'm not a huge fan of this movie, but Shaun of the Dead was a comedy zombie movie. And I, I I worked for some people. I didn't particularly enjoy the movie, but I know a lot of people thought it was really funny.
2: You can also work comedic elements into other games that are more serious, but not necessarily meant to be played perfectly straight to the hilt. Um, having a great comedic interlude can break up tension in a way that uh, helps propel the game forward because it, it takes away a sticking point that was making it hard to uh, to act in. So keep those ideas in your back pocket. It helps, again, you really need to know your audience, the rest of the people who are at your virtual table, but lightening the mood, definitely uh, a useful tool in the trade.
0: All right, and with that, I believe we are going to move on to our next topic, which is introducing new people to play by post tabletop role-playing games. Just getting new people into the hobby, and I ha- I didn't write a lot of the notes for this topic, but so I'm going to let Ruben lead us into the topic. All right,
1: so um, when you're introducing new people, the first thing to really realize, all right, so. Introducing new people is a valuable skill to have as a GM, but it's not an easy one to develop uh, for most people. But I think it's one really well worth developing. And so we're trying to kind of just give some general advice. And just to start things off, you really have to realize you're an ambassador for our hobby and not any one game. You're here to sell the idea that role-playing is really awesome, because it is. And you can't do that if you also at the same time go, oh, don't play that game. It's terrible. Especially if that new player might actually really enjoy that game. So realize that you're not selling any one game. You're actually selling the hobby of, it, in of itself.
2: The fun is being with and interacting with other people. And that is gotta be first and foremost on your mind. If you're having fun and the guy next to you is having fun and the guy next to him is having fun, It doesn't matter what you're doing, right? You're having fun. It's like going to a ball game, and we're here, and we're drinking beers, and we're having fun. Role-playing should be exactly like that. If you're not enjoying what you're doing, you're not going to keep doing it. So make it enjoyable.
0: And one thing I'll add is when when you're – this is just a general tip for trying to sell anything, really, but when you're enthusiastic about something – That enthusiasm tends to rub off on other people. So you don't want to say, oh yeah, let's do this thing. It's totally cool, I guess. You want to be really excited and really upbeat about what you're trying to get this person or people involved in. You want to say, oh yeah, let me show you this. Here's the book. Look at this pretty art. Hey, you could be this guy. Hey, you could be that guy. Or hey, you can do this and this and this. And you just want to be almost overflowing with information and, like, potential knowledge, just because the more cool things you show your potential players, the more likely they are to say, hey, that would be really cool. I want to do that.
2: Ebulent and effusive. Don't soft
0: pedal.
1: And kind of to that end, if you got to introduce a new player, first of all, kind of talk to them and see what kind of genres and movies and stuff they like. But if it's at all possible introduce them to that one system or that one game or that one genre you just love because that's going to bubble over as well. And you're more likely to know the rules very well and be able to kind of teach it better.
2: Yeah. That's the next phase. Once you get them to at least sit down at the table with you, you got to teach it in a way that they can quickly understand and get involved, make a contribution, be part of the excitement.
0: I think that's good advice for any game. Get everybody involved. (laughs) Yeah, for sure.
1: So once you've kind of set your hook, you got them willing to try it out, like, oh, this might be cool. you kind of be like, hey, come do this cool thing. Um, the first step i like to do is give a very brief overview of the world, and I'm talking very brief. Uh, if I'm introducing somebody to the Forgotten Realms, I will probably say, oh, it's like the Lord of the Rings, but there's more magic and a lot more races. And you can be a wizard or a fighter or something like that. Just bare minimum kind of basic overview. And then start helping them make their character. And don't go through, okay, now you roll stats. Now you pick skills. Instead, kind of do it more as a story. Kind of ask them, you sort of uh, ask them leading questions. All right, what does your character look like? Is he big and tall with pointy ears? Or is he short with a beard? Or maybe he's really small? Or, you know, what's he like? Kind of basically let them
0: pick races and classes just with sort of leading questions. So once you've kind of established what the, like, so most game systems, or at least to use D&D as an example, there's a pretty set form for going through building a character. You start with race, you pick a class, you pick skills, you pick up equipment, blah, blah, blah. So you don't want to go too in-depth with the rules right off the bat. You want to be able to get the person to say, well, I want my character to do this and say, okay, great, that fits with a wizard. Or, okay, great, that fits with a rogue. And then you kind of lead them to the rules based on what they want to do with their character. Right, and you could do the same thing with more specific stuff like feats and
1: skills. I mean, after like, okay, you're kind of like this, but what is he really good at? And like, oh, I know how to weave baskets. Well, okay, that's professional basket weaving. You go take that skill. Just bottom line, never flood the new player with tons of rules and jargon. Start slow and do it in chunks.
2: Yeah, this can be a tricky thing to balance if you are used to high levels of optimization. If you're if you're a person who likes to take a system and uh wring the maximum benefit out of it, it can be really easy to to try and, uh, delve that deeply into the rules as you're trying to build someone a new character. Cause you're, you have the instinct to want to build them the best character possible. They don't have that instinct yet because they're brand new to the game. They're just looking to be able to do something cool. Give them an opportunity to really get into it first. You can always optimize them later. And if you're the GM with a brand new player, I personally have found myself being very permissive with the, okay well this this bill didn't do exactly what I wanted it to do. Can I change things? Well, you know typically the answer is no, but in this type of situation, I would definitely make the answer yes and yes, and here's some ideas for how to to go about meeting your expectations a little bit better. Help them through that uh transition process from novice to experienced player.
1: oh definitely, yeah, you have to um yeah. Let them make mistakes. Yeah, let them take knowledge basket weaving. Hey, maybe they'll be useful. If it isn't, let them change it. Uh, in most of my games, I give every player, even experienced players, at least five or six sessions to change things. Well, I just started running a D&D game for my regular tabletop group um, Thursday. And I have an experienced player, but he's never played D&D. first character he comes up with is a Goliath Barbarian with long Van Halen hair who's like a heavy metal rock god who's a barbarian. The character's awesome.
2: The best part about new players is that they're not constrained by the expectations of the past. They've never played Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil. They've never played Keep on the Borderlands. All these standard adventuring things that, you know, we played decades ago, and, oh, that's just a cliche. To them, it's new. Play it. Have fun with it. Oh
1: yeah, this is definitely a time where you got to meet in a tavern and you're going to go kill some rats in the basement because they've never done it before, and it's a classic for a reason.
2: They have yet to learn to be afraid of rows of statues.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, I I want to back up just a little bit, because I was thinking about this. And the more that video games become popular in our world the more that people are going to be familiar with ideas from like D&D so someone who's never played D&D but has played for example World of Warcraft they know what an NPC is and i think that actually makes it easier to get people into tabletop role playing games Just because they're already kind of familiar with those concepts of, okay, this is an NPC, I interact with them to get the quest, okay, I go do the quest and now I get a reward. I think that video games are actually making it easier to get people more interested in role-playing games in general. Oh, absolutely. And if your new player is familiar with a certain type of video game,
1: uh, make sure that They understand the differences between D&D or whatever system you're using and whatever game they're playing. For example, my brand new player in the D&D game, first time playing D&D, but she played a lot of Skyrim. And so she keeps coming like, oh, I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to do this. I also want to be able to do that in addition. And it's kind of hard. It's like, okay, this isn't Skyrim. You can't eventually do everything. You have kind of a niche.
2: Yeah, the the difference between a single-player and a multiplayer game cannot be overstated because many of the single-player games are designed that as the difficulty goes up, you essentially have to become godlike in order to be victorious at the end. A troop-based adventure is designed around interactions where not everyone can do everything and everyone needs each other in order to make the game.
0: I think that's a trap that a lot of new players fall into anyway. They want to try to do everything, and then you have to kind of rein them in and pull them back and say, well, hold on, your character can be really good at this thing. Let whoever else take care of that so you don't have to worry about it. Because, like Mordai said, in video games, as a single player, you have to be good at everything to be able to overcome every challenge. They have to realize it's a teamwork thing instead of oh i have to be able to overcome any challenge that's put in front of which i think is pretty much exactly what he just said just said in a different way
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's okay sometimes things cannot be overemphasized the other thing that i was going to to say in addition to, to rubens example of uh, them being familiar with another genre and moving into the into whatever gaming system is you've got to be careful to to break um, what I'll call set, setting lock early on. You don't want them to be so fixated on, well, this is the way it works in this genre, and so I'm expecting that that's the way it has to work in your game. Fix that problem early on. Don't let it fester so that you're halfway through the game and they're still fixated on uh, gnomes are this and elves are that when they're in fact not.
1: So... Kind of going back a little bit, once your character, once you've got the new player to make their character, the character's made, get the dice in their hand as fast as you can. All you have to explain is the bare minimum rules to get started. Like, if you're doing DD, you just, like, tell them, okay, you roll a D20, and you add your modifiers. If you're rolling Fate, you pretty much tell them, take the skill, roll 40 fudge, and add them together. Just do the basics and get playing And then you can kind of structure that first
0: adventure around showcasing all the various mechanics. Using cliches here is vital. So, like, most... If you're introducing a new player to the game, you already know all the cliches. But a new player, they don't. So there's a reason they're cliches, though. They're really good for getting new players in the door. So you start in a tavern, there's some goblins in a cave go deal with those goblins, come back, and we'll give you a reward. That is extremely cliched for us, but for new players, that is one of the easiest ways to get them actually doing something with
2: the game. Exactly. And many of those early adventures, if you're taking a pre-generated module, are structured around teaching the game. I mean, I mentioned Keep on the Borderlands early on. There's a reason it's B1, it was the first one they put out and it's got that motif. You start here, you move on to this. It's not guaranteed to be linear, but it gives you a way of kind of directing traffic so that they don't have to think about the whys and can focus on the hows just enough to get them over that initial hump.
1: So I'm actually gonna specifically point out the D and D starter set for fifth edition because the first adventure they have keep our uh Lost Binds of Fandelver is amazing as a teaching tool. And in the adventure, they will go through and give the DM advice, like, okay, we're going to do this kind of thing now here, and like, have all the players do this. But now we're going to do it a slightly different way. And they teach by doing, which is the best way to do it. Just start introducing different aspects of the game system and the world in small chunks, let the new player digest that chunk, then give them a new chunk.
0: And you can make, you can make those chunks easier to digest if you pull from sources that that player already knows. So like, if you're running D&D, you can pull from the Lord of the Rings movies to help explain things, but you have to be careful with that because you don't want them falling into the trap of thinking that everything in D&D is like Lord of the Rings. I, we touched on this earlier, but you have to, you can use examples, but you have to be careful to keep them from thinking that everything is like something that it's not. So you know what kind of setting
1: I've used to introduce more players than anybody else? It's not D&D. It's Star Trek. Chances are almost every single player has seen at least an episode of Star Trek. They understand all the basic rules, and if you're running a Star Trek game, all the setting stuff is the same. So you can really shortcut a lot of explanations by
0: using a game set in an existing universe the player would know. I think nowadays, for the fantasy example, we would probably use Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, that's not bad.
2: Especially gets them over the hump of character death, because, well, you know, it's just an expectation. Job <laughs>
1: that's <hazard>. true. <laughs> uh, I've actually also used just Middle-earth role-playing. That
2: works well, too. The system or the concept? Either or both. Well, as long as you take it easy on them, because hey, systems vary, but... My experience with Middle Earth is it's very easy for someone to accidentally walk themselves into a three table critical fumble, you know, impaled themselves on a spoon through the right nostril and die a bloody death in the first uh, five minutes of the game.
1: Uh, the other thing I've used is I will run a fate accelerated supers game. Everybody knows about superheroes. I mean, I think you would have had to live in a hole to not even know about the basics of Superman. So the setting is pretty easy. Fate Accelerated is easy, and the really nice thing about Fate Accelerated is the rules are five dollars.
0: That's true. To the point, you really don't want to saddle your player with a whole bunch of costs up front. You don't want to say, "Okay, well, to play this game, you need this fifty-dollar rule book, this thirty-five-dollar supplement book, this forty-dollar miniature." Like you don't want to do that to your player. Just A, because it's rude, and B, because not everybody has that kind of scratch just laying around to use for a game that they don't even know they'll enjoy.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, to the point, I actually have sitting around a couple extra copies of Fate Accelerated and a couple extra copies of the Savage Worlds Explorers Edition because they're both super cheap, and if I introduce a new player at the end of the session, I can ask them, hey, did you like this? I can then just hand them the rulebook. And then there's also all the various games that have SRDs where you can get the rules for free. I mean, bottom line, you want to remove as many barriers to entry as you possibly can. I mean, you're showing enthusiasm. Your next step is make sure it's as easy as it's possible for them to kind of get into the game themselves.
2: Now, if you're the GM, you've got a lot of responsibilities in addition to just trying to help this new player in. If you got another good friend in the uh, group, making them pair up having them be a buddy to the new player can be a great way to a introduce the person to someone else. If it's not someone that they know B offload responsibilities from yourself, but not abdicating them so that it actually still gets done. You can also do a a, a mini session, you know, try to a, a, a little preview with them and maybe one other player. So now you've got that buddy involved with them early on to, to, instruct in a, in a less pressure-filled environment with the rest of the players.
1: Yeah, and kind of in the same way of giving them a buddy, maybe also take it easy on the new player or the group in general with your first adventure. Maybe scale the enemies down a little bit. Make it a little bit easier. I mean, nothing breeds excitement like success. If your new player is... Just don't expect your new player to know all the tricks. I mean, don't throw a rust monster against the new player if the new player is playing a fighter and a chainmail. I mean, that's kind of mean. They're not going to know it's a trick monster. Instead, maybe throw them up a couple of uh, slightly sickly kobolds and let them get that nice taste of victory.
2: Right, and those kobolds do not have a 40-foot-deep spike-lined pit trap guarding their front entrance, even though that's exactly what they would do.
0: I think ultimately the goal is... you. Now You've gotten them to the point where they have a character, they're at the table, now you're trying to avoid scaring them away. So you've got them almost through the door, now you just have to keep them from running away at the last second by making them realize, oh, my character's terrible, I can't do anything, this is boring, I want to leave.
2: And that is a very real danger with, uh, I'll say, many of the D20 systems. Early on, characters are going to have missed chances Against reasonably competent opponents, or, and when I say reasonably competent, I mean goblins on the order of fifty percent. If you're swinging your sword and missing half the time, you're going to feel pretty dumb.
1: Yeah, um, so you got your character into the door, you haven't scared them off. you've had a nice session or a nice like first thread. After that's done, you really have to check in with the new player and just kind of ask them, like, "Hey, what'd you think? How'd it go? Were you confused about anything?" Are you excited about anything? Uh, just kind of make sure you're really, really communicating out of character because that also builds good habits for the future.
2: Yeah, it's not an exit interview so much as just a you know, a you know, friendly you know, it's opportunity for you to learn just as much as it is for them to to vent. You know, if there's something they didn't like, sometimes all it takes is opening the conversation in order to uh, to get that uh, steam to come out.
0: And one thing I will mention, you can't force someone to like role-playing. Like, not everyone is going to enjoy it. And that's fine. That's not a problem with the person. It's not a problem with you. It's not a problem with the game. It's just sometimes people just don't have fun playing a role-playing game. And that's perfectly acceptable. Like, you can't hold that against them. You can't, I mean, you can't take offense if they don't like your game. Sometimes it just happens. I mean, if that does come up. Maybe ask them, hey, was it just the whole thing in general? Or maybe are you just
1: not really about D&D? And if we played something like Star Trek, maybe you'd be more excited.
2: That can be a little bit more of a challenge if you've got an established group that wants to do a thing. Uh, but certainly, you know, broadening the horizons of your established group is not a bad idea either. And you know, you can bridge the, bridge the gap. You can negotiate. You know, okay, we'll, we'll finish up this adventure and then we're going to try something different in a different system that this, this new guy is interested in. Well, and I've
1: actually referred new players to other groups and GMs that I actually, uh, really trust. I mean, yeah, I've had one player. It's like, uh, I don't like playing with so many men. I'm like, oh, hey, well, I got this lady friend. Uh, her group is all women. I mean, do you want to go try with her? I mean, chances are on the weave, if you've been there for any amount of time, we all have a fairly large collection of friends, and we know certain friends like certain games fairly well. I mean, I've got buddies that if I'm not running a fake game, but there's a player that's new, I'm like, oh, I can give you to a couple of my other friends instead.
0: Speaking of the weave, we have kind of moved away from play-by-post, because most of this advice is for, like, A face to face tabletop game. But if you are trying to get someone into play by post, either to join you on a game or to consider running a game or anything like that, you want to make sure that you explain the basics of the site to the new person. Mythweavers, I would say, is not the most intuitive website to use, even though it is one of the most powerful in terms of being able to do what we do on it. But At the same time, you don't want to flood them with information about the website. You don't want to say, oh, well, you can do this and this and this is how a table tag works. And you know, you don't want to, you don't want to overload them and make them think the website is unusable, but you do want to make sure they understand, okay, this is a thread. This is, so everybody takes turns posting in order. Um, you just want to go through the basics of how the format works and how it's different from playing at a tabletop. Yeah, and maybe it's played a couple of
1: the, like, okay, we have sheets here. Here's how you fill out a sheet. Maybe if you're feeling cheeky, show them how to do a sheet roll. Uh, I will say one of our big advantages for Play by Post, if there is a rule question, uh, we don't have to stop excitement at the table and answer it. Instead, we can set up a separate thread for rules questions and maybe get the other players to answer them. So the action doesn't have to slow down just because the new player needs to ask a rules question.
2: And, and along those same lines, um, the open communication channels—they're kind of built into a tabletop. If you're you're all getting together, you're all sitting there face to face. It's easy to talk, keeping that out of character thread lively, and making sure that the new person feels like they're a part of the group, able to talk to everyone else, and you know, it, it's not just the click and them—the the guy on the outside you know breaking that down early on with good active communication uh, is extremely critical in play by post
0: and speaking of the open communication that mythweavers allows for it's super easy that if you or it's super easy to send someone to an already existing game so like if you're a reader in a game or if you're playing in a game currently just send them the link to the game so they can read it and get an idea for how the game flows and how it works. That's probably one of the best ways to get someone into Mythweavers is show them, hey, look, this is how it works. Here's an already existing game that has a bunch of examples of dice being rolled, characters interacting, etc. I think we covered that pretty good. Yeah, we are. Normally, this would be the time of the show when we do the game of the week. We are actually not doing a game of the week. Sorry, but we're not. So, instead, before we move on to the Q&A session for the evening, I want to take a moment to let everyone know about, a little bit about the future of Weaving Myths. Uh, next week we will be doing episode 2 of Lost Minds of Fandelver, and the week after that we will be going back to our bi-weekly schedule of regular episodes. I certainly hope that everyone will join us for the first episode of Weaving Myths Season 2. That is going to be on February third at 8 PM Eastern Time. Uh season two is going to last until the end of May, after which we'll be taking a break for a couple of months to prepare for season four or season three, which will be starting in August. So Kibby says, as a patron, he demands a game of the week.
1: So here's a game of the week. The Eagles Vikings game on Sunday. That
0: is my game of the week. Oh man, I am So hoping my Eagles win. Go Vikes! Oh my god, no, you did not. Oh, I
1: did. No. Hey, Nate, I'm with you. Because as a Packers fan, I'm always going to vote against the Vikings. Uh, Well, unless they play the Patriots, and then I have to root for the Vikings. That's fair. Fair.
2: Go Pats. Oh my
1: god.
2: And that's more heartfelt than uh, the Vikings. I just like uh, guys in cool... Horn helmets. <laughs> it's my scan showing through.
1: Yeah, you know, at least, at least I'll give the Vikings one thing. They're from the Midwest. Or we do football for real.
2: In a dome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it really, I just want the Patriots to lose. Hey, Kimmy, you asked, you asked for a game of the week. I gave you a game of the week. You did not specify.
0: Alright, let's move on to the question and answer segment. It's everybody's favorite time of the show. Uh, so before we get to the questions and answers, we have the mandatory question, which is what is making us happy this week?
2: Well, I'll go first. After several years of dealing with some shoulder pain, I finally actually got back into lifting weights and the shoulder pain is gone after two weeks. I don't know why I didn't do this sooner, but it's a great thing.
1: That's awesome. Uh, for me, uh, I just started running a new D&D campaign for my tabletop group half of whom have never played D&D. It's super-duper fun. Yeah, and it's been great seeing what the players came up with. I mean, my longtime friend and player who's never played D&D, Goliath Barbarian, who's a scald who looks like kind of a huge, tall Eddie Van Halen with a sweet, magical guitar, and his brother is a dwarf with two warhammers. He's like a thunder cleric. He plays, like, the rhythm. So they're like the Thunder Twins, and they like rocking the battle to uh, Immigrant Song. It's pretty awesome. Also, the water damage is getting dried in our place, which is why you guys hear that great hum with my voice.
2: So you could say that this guy's got an axe to grind?
1: He totally has an axe to grind. Oh, and the dude who did my installing for all the drying equipment, when I mentioned I was a print and game designer, he's like, oh, do you work with Wizards of the Coast much? Dude was a nerd bro. So props to the hymn.
0: So uh for me. Making me happy this week. Um well The Eagles are in the playoffs. That's all oh, right, yeah, I'm gonna go with that. The Eagles are in the playoffs. That's that's actually just about all I got at the moment. <laughs> I, got a, <laughs> I got a... I got a, yeah. meh, I got a whole what? plate of stuff going on right now.
1: <laughs> that we've started doing uh Weeby Myths again. That's pretty cool. Woohoo!
0: Alright, so it is now time for the questions to start rolling in. We do have a few here already that we are going to answer. Um, so we're going to start answering these, and while we're answering them, please feel free in the text chat to ask any questions. It can be about anything you want. Uh, it can be about Mythweavers, it can be about gaming, it can be about topics we've talked about tonight, it can be about topics we've talked about in the past, it can be about future topics... So yeah, go ahead and ask your questions. And while we are doing that, we are going to start with: Does role playing a storyline help you write a better novel?
2: Well, if you ask longtime Mythweavers member Daphnis, she would say absolutely. But that's probably because she's currently in the process of publishing a novel that is essentially collaborative storytelling between her and another longtime Mythweavers member, Night Eyes fifty six seventy eight.
1: I can't really speak to the former, but I can totally say that why you need to write a novel makes you run a far worse storyline. In college, my wife was in a uh, World of Narcus game. The storyteller had run the game, the campaign previously, and he wanted to run it again just so he could touch things up for his novel. He pretty much forced all the players to make the same decisions, and he handed my wife a character. He handed her a virtual adept. And my wife is not a virtual adept. She has trouble with windows. She hated it. Everybody hated it.
0: It was awful. So, having written a novel, I did not do any role playing for it. But roleplaying, does, especially on Mythweavers. So, play-by-post roleplaying makes you a better writer. Oh, that's true. So, even if you don't roleplay the novel, roleplaying in general... Makes you better at writing and coming up with ideas for characters. It helps with the creative process in general.
2: That's absolutely true. There's one point of caution that I will have with role playing and novel writing. As a singular author with a novel writer, you have the ability to make characters make decisions that make sense for the endpoint that you kind of have in mind with role playing. I would say it's absolutely imperative that you don't force characters to make decisions that fit with your preconceived notions because taking away player agency is just simply bad. You should never ever do it. So you've, you've got to balance it. You can write a great novel post facto based on the decisions that were made. But if you have a novel in mind, trying to shoehorn actors into your novel, this isn't theater. This is gaming and people should be allowed to make decisions and succeed or fail and and have fun doing it.
1: You know, speaking of theater, um, at one point my wife and I, uh, volunteered to help a, like a middle school theater, help them direct. She's got a theater degree. I did a bunch of theater. Uh, I actually ran, they were doing Hamlet. So I kind of ran a simple Hamlet role playing game just to kind of get them all in the mood. And, man, that really helped them get into character.
2: There's a reason why method acting is very popular. It's because being able to think the decision process of the character makes what they're doing make more sense when you put yourself in their shoes.
1: Also in that version, Hamlet didn't die. And I think Cordelia oh, well.
2: saved Hamlet. As long as he didn't ride off to the sunset with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, we're probably okay.
1: <laughs> that would totally do that. That's an awesome ending.
2: What about Ophelia? Ophelia's got to be there on a horse, too.
1: I don't know. She resurrects Horatio and runs off with him.
2: (laughs) Okay.
0: So our next question is, is role-playing a creative outlet or a creative smotherer? And honestly, I don't know how it could be a creative smotherer. Unless you are playing under a GM that is forcing you to make decisions that you wouldn't by yourself.
1: Yeah, for the most part, I agree. Except there's been a couple of times when I took on maybe three or four more games than I really should have, and it started to kind of become a grind just to keep up. But yeah, for the most part, oh man, I I love getting into my uh, posts each day because, you know, it helps me think of things for my own home games.
0: You know, that's actually a good point. I didn't really think about that. But I've been, I'm slowly working on the sequel to the novel I mentioned earlier, and I've really been struggling to work on it lately. But I've also really been struggling to make posts with Mythweavers, and i know it's partially that time of year where things slow down anyway but that's interesting i've i've not really thought about it that way i wonder if i just have too much on my plate yeah i mean it can
1: get to the point where it becomes a real drag not because the role plane is drag because it's not it's a great creative jump start but because there's just so much to do it can feel so overwhelming uh although for me personally i love it because all my work is visual in nature And you can't keep working on InDesign for endless hours. You have to take breaks. And for me, I find switching over and doing a post in a game a great work break.
2: Yeah, breaking it up into small chunks is really the key to overcoming that burnout. Um, I've had long periods of time where work has been really busy, and so I don't have those little breaks to, to go do something, You know, make a post here and there, and I get home and I'm like, I've got nine games to update and i can't think of ideas for any of them right now and that's you know, all the time i have so i'm host um you know it's those times where you just have to tell your players hey going through a bit of a funk here and let's try and you know push it as well as we can and maybe give them the opportunity to uh to take the lead a little bit it can take the weight off of you
1: yeah well i mean i think my games list right now is 14 or 15 games long so yeah i'm about at that point i shouldn't add any more games
2: Hey, you want to play a game? I don't know. What's the system? Probably Rices, to be honest. <laughs> well,
1: that's pretty easy. I could probably add that. You see, this it's is a problem. problem.
2: The title of the game is currently written as Merlana Wants a Dungeon Crawl.
0: Oh, you know what? I might totally be into that, actually. You know, I still think we need to try and get, like, all of the staff into a single play-by-post game. I think that would just be awesome. You know what? I would even volunteer to run it.
2: That's two games you just added to your plate there, Ruben.
1: <laughs> See, this is why I have that problem. But no, yeah, we'll kick it around in the staff channel, but first off the top of my head, Deadlands.
0: All right, so our next question is, what are some indie RPGs that we know about and want to share with people?
2: Oh, should we limit it to ones we haven't already done to death?
0: Well, I was going to say leverage, so I don't know. Does that
2: count? Does that count? If I say Rysis again, someone's going to shoot me.
1: <laughs> oh, it's a great rules-right system. It's actually the one system I carry around at all the cons in case I need a quick pickup game between other slots.
2: Warrior Rogue Mage.
1: Oh, I love Warrior Rogue Mage. So yeah, any of you guys who uh, like fantasy, check out Warrior Rogue and Mage. It's free, it's super easy, and it works great for playing Post.
0: post. Um, I'm going to throw one out there that I don't think I've ever mentioned on the on the show before but mythic game master emulator it's a i love it it's an unusual system in that there's no gm or dm and the game facilitates basically everything for you so the way it works is you have your typical four to six people at a table but all of them are players and the game gm's for you uh it's amazing and confession
1: time once a month on a Sunday, I have four D and D characters I all control, and I use the Mythic to run the game because no one will run D and D for me, so I run it for myself.
2: Sounds like one deck dungeon.
0: Um, so Chibi Amy is asking where you can get this, and let me—I think it's on Drive RPG.
1: Yeah, it's on Drive
0: Let me see if I can find the link. Oh, they also have an app. Yeah, there's an app and a web a web page you can do it on as well. Uh The app works really well. Uh, at
1: least on iOS. I can't say for other Android.
0: And I have put the link in the description, or in, in the description, in the text chat. Uh, well for me, I'll mention it
1: again because I love it. Uh, Blades in the Dark. It's inspired by the apocalypse, I would say. I, I mean, I've gone over this before. It's been in my What's Making Me Happy. It's basically sort of, yeah, you play thieves in a weird kind of dark London sort of thing. It's pretty fun. It's like leverage. It's like dark fantasy leverage, except you're not actually doing stuff for good people. You're just dealing things. Oh, uh, another I want to uh, mention is Inspectors. I mentioned that this episode. It's a really great kind of office space meets uh, Ghostbusters. You're basically kind of like a Ghostbusters franchise, and it plays really easy. The GM doesn't have to do a lot of work it's really kind of responsive to what the players think. Super fun
0: game. So, I'll go ahead and throw out another one. I know I've mentioned this one in the past, but the window is I think an extremely underused uh rules light system that can facilitate literally
2: anything given that I'm using it to pl- run a Stargate game on the weave right now. Uh I will wholeheartedly agree because it was designed for more Victorian horror, and uh, uh, Stargate is not that.
1: Oh, you know, I'll mention one I actually worked on recently. Uh, Other Worlds, which is the sci-fi companion to the... um, Wait, no, sorry. Other Worlds is the system, and I worked on Super Luminary, which is the sci-fi companion to Other Worlds. It's kind of like fate, only instead of your aspects having to be invoked, you just roll dice for the aspects... It's really nice, it's pretty simple, and it works great for any sort of sci-fi, from Star Wars to Star Trek to Stargate. Oh, and Mouse Guard. Guard.
2: No, Amy, I am not using the Stargate RPG, because I don't need that kind of rule set in order to have a fun, funny game. My game is not about shooting up as many ghouls and uh, Jaffa as I can put in front of my players.
1: Ooh, another one I really like is Rain by Greg Stolzey uses the one-role engine, which actually works really well for play-by-post because all the players can post the roles just in post-order and then use the roles to determine what actually happens in order. And the setting is just so weird and creative. I love it.
0: All right, so we are going to move on to our next question. Um, just a reminder that as we are going through these questions, please feel free to continue asking questions in the text chat. But our next question is, what foods do you like to have while gaming? You can't go wrong with Cheetos. Oh, you still can.
1: Uh, so I actually cook for my game group, my tabletop group, every week. And uh, personally, uh, I really like doing, like, uh, roasts because uh, they're pretty easy to do ahead of time. I'll just sous vide them, and I just have to finish them in the oven, so most of the prep can be done ahead of time. I do a lot of tacos... Um, uh, every once in a while I'll do like steaks if there's not too many of us. Uh, usually I'll do like steamed vegetables. Uh, you know, you can actually bang together a quick roux
0: through, a, do a bechamel sauce and do mac and cheese pretty easy. You know, I always, I've always been a fan of chili or pasta. Those are both really easy to just kind of throw together and have a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I, I do chili, but if I do chili. I have to do start with my own hot sauce, then I have to start with my own salsa, then I have to soak the beans, then I have to go source the meat. So yeah, I love chili. A lot of prep work ahead of time.
2: Back in college, our gaming group would meet on Fridays, and the guys who owned or rented the apartment uh, had a grill, and they would go to the grocery store and pick up whatever cuts of meat were readily available, and and we would grill every Friday. Ah. Uh, and uh, Aside from the time when Josh almost burned his entire face off by adding lighter fluid to a lit pile of coals, uh, it was a good experience. Uh, meanwhile, a uh, later gaming group, when, uh, when we uh, my wife and I had grown up and gotten real jobs, well, actually, I guess no. she was still in graduate yeah. school. I was still in school. Uh, so um, we had a friend who had an apartment, and he was an excellent Thai chef, and oh my goodness, we could eat well for months on end.
0: I did have a lot of success with, like, we went to, it was, we didn't do anything fancy, we just went to the Walmart deli, and we got a bunch of fresh meat, fresh cheese, and then we did a build your own sub night, and that turned out really good. Everybody got to put exactly what they wanted on their, on their sandwich.
1: Yeah, that's my, I don't wanna cook this week meal. Works well. Oh, the other thing we'll do is uh, build your own uh, potato night. Want us to bake some potatoes, and I'll have like crumbled meats and cheeses and vegetables and all this stuff. That worked really well. And then once, maybe once every other month, especially if it's about time to print new character sheets, uh, we'll do fondue night where everybody just brings a little something to dip into the fondue, and I'll do a like an oil fondue, and I'll do like a uh, cheese fondue.
2: Yum. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to be a non-traditionalist and say I'm not a big fan of pizza with gaming.
1: Pizza's a fallback
0: for me. It's pretty greasy, so it's easy to grease up your sheets. Well, you know, a character sheet's not official until you spill something on
2: it. Well, yeah, true. My my main objection to pizza is the getting up every 10 minutes or so to go get another slice. It, it gets very interruptive. Yeah, at
1: the same time, it's pizza, and I kind of love pizza. so Well, oh, there's do, nothing wrong
2: we'll well with eating pizza.
1: But, I mean, the one thing is, every once in a while, I can just declare pizza night which is the night when everybody else pitches in money and I don't have to pay for dinner. So that pizza is doubly delicious.
2: Free is flavorful.
1: That and Portland has so many really good pizza joints that deliver that, yeah.
2: Man, now I want pizza. Fortunately for you, it's only, what, 8 p.m.? You've got a chance.
0: Oh, man. The Schmitz is open until at least 1 a.m. All right, let's move on to our next question. Do we prefer all-day gaming marathons or... More frequent, shorter sessions. God, who has time for an all-day session?
2: Back in college, we would start gaming at 6 p.m. and finish in time for breakfast. But, um, yeah, as you get older, you you start having responsibilities, and the kids look at you weird when you're uh, stumbling upstairs at 5 a.m. So, um, yeah, shorter sessions, more frequent, more social
0: yeah, back in the day, I could. We would start at like like I said, we would start at six a six p.m. and it would be three and four in the morning before we crashed. But yeah, that darn being an adult thing.
1: So yeah, the whole being an adult thing. But my long term gaming buddies and I every three months. Uh So I have um two of my friends, both of them are in timeshares with the same company, and so they have points. They usually have to use up or lose them. So, every three months, we will rent a couple of suites on the coast, and we'll do a three-day weekend gamer weekend, where all we do for three days is game. And it's awesome. Usually, one day, we'll do an all-day D&D session, and then we'll just round it out with a bunch of board games and magic.
0: Sweet. Yeah, I'm super jealous of that. That sounds awesome.
2: Yeah, it's called Two and No Kids. Yeah, dinks are lucky. Um... Once you have to play uh, man-to-man or zone defense, you're pretty much out of luck.
0: Yeah, no, i
1: have to sub in for my sister every once in a
0: while. All right, and we have one last question from Chibi Amy, and Chibi Amy wants to know what made us decide to run the Mythweaver site. So two things about that. First of all, it was Rodrigo's decision to start the site, and second of all, we're not really supposed to talk about it there was a dispute in the past on a different website that Rodrigo split away from that website and created Mythweavers. Uh, we, we really can't go into much detail about that. I will say it's really fun to be involved with. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely.
2: Right. I think we all joined this because we were having fun playing and helping out with the uh, a Community project is uh, is something that is just a way to give back. So I'm glad to be helping.
0: And sadly, we're still using some of the sheets I coded, which means they're not very good. We are working on updating them. It's it's taking time. Uh, mainly, the reason it's taking so much time is mainly because we're kind of working on like infrastructure things in the background. So we're when we get that infrastructure better suited for making sheets. We'll be able to do it more quickly and easily, but at the moment it's, it's not very user friendly. I mean, I'm also just embarrassed at my past work.
2: That's pretty much a given with software engineering is when you design something, you instantly know as soon as you're done with it, that you could have done it better.
1: Well, I'm not sure why you guys let the dumb artists loose on the sheets. <laughs>
2: Did I mention volunteer this is all a bunch of people who are doing this because we love it up to and including the boss man at the top who's doing it as a side hobby while he works on being an opera singer when he's not pretending to be a it consultant so he's a busy guy he puts in lots and lots of hours on myth weavers and probably doesn't sleep nearly as much as he should you yeah. The rest of us are helping out as best we can, too. It's, you know, as much time as we can put in.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean Yeah, we do it because we love it. Yeah, none of us are getting paid. I'm not in it for the
0: big, big internet bucks. And I should mention, Rodrigo is, like, one of the most dedicated people. He just, he works so hard on Mythweavers and e- basically everything he does. And it just, it blows me away how dedicated he is to this site. In addition to everything else he does. Oh yeah, he's a prince of a man.
2: And before we jump into the uh the Patreon plug, I'll mention that you know the site does cost money and yes we we do have uh community supporters and that's that that's a way to give back by uh financially contributing, but there's also ways to give back simply by you know participating in site discussion when there's topics that are brought up about what does the community want or need. If you present things in a respectful manner and are willing to recognize that, you know, sometimes it may take a long time to bring a good idea to fruition, we're always listening.
1: Uh, that and reporting posts is also very helpful because instead of us having to monitor everything, if enough people report, 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 that's a word, report. If enough people report problematic posts, it means we have to do less work searching through everything. It's very helpful for us.
2: I was going to say, and uh, extra money that comes in uh, via the Weaving Myths Patreon also, uh, I think, goes to help defray some of the site costs, if I recall correctly, and also open up opportunities for uh, site things, contests, et cetera, that, uh, that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise.
0: Yeah, so actually, that's exactly what I was about to say. Um, before we move on to me asking you for money the the money that we get from Patreon so there's operating costs for weaving myths um we pay a certain amount to have all of the episodes uploaded to SoundCloud and beyond that all of the money we get from the Patreon goes back into the site rodrigo has Asked me that we don't help pay for like operating costs for the site, but instead it's going to things that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise, namely giving back to the community in the form of doing contests where the, the top prize is like a physical copy of the D&D fifth edition player's handbook. Um, we ran a contest last year. It was either last year or the year before where we gave away one of those and the, the Patreon money makes that possible. Well, and just, it lets us know
1: that you guys value what we're doing and you find us entertaining. I mean, it's also really kind of just, I mean, none of us get paid for this. So seeing somebody
2: pledge is like, oh, they like us. Well, I get paid and then I get a couple hours away from the kids, but um, that's a different story.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, that's worth way more than money.
0: All right, let's move on to the asking for money thing. Before we wrap up for the evening, I'd like to take just a moment to remind everyone that this episode of Weaving Myths is made possible by our Patreon. We have several tiers of rewards, ranging from us taking your topic suggestions more seriously than non-patrons, all the way up to receiving a free copy of my latest novel. This episode in particular is a great example of one of the rewards of becoming a patron, which wouldn't be possible if we hadn't met one of our per-month goals on Patreon. Also, next week we'll be doing the second episode of Lost Minds of Fandelver, another special reward made possible by our Patreon. Contributions start at as little as $1 per month, so it doesn't take much at all to show your support. If you haven't checked out... The Patreon page yet. It's super easy to get to. You go to patreon.com slash mythweavers. And one last thing I should note, Weaving Myths is always has been and will always continue to be free. Full episodes are always uploaded to SoundCloud within two days of the episode being recorded. And all normal episodes will always be available for download or streaming free of charge. So, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. It's been a blast, and we appreciate all of the comments and questions from the text chat, as always. I'm Nathan, and I've been joined by the
2: magnificent Mordai. So long, and thanks for all the games.
0: And Ruben. Later. Thanks for listening, and keep on weaving those myths.